Thank you, Chris, and good morning. Welcome to worship this morning. My name is Eric. I get to pastor here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church, and we're delighted that you're here. We're going to continue to worship together as we gather around God's Word. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to begin the process of finding the little epistle called 1 Thessalonians. We will be in chapter 4 this morning, but as you're turning to 1 Thessalonians, I want to tell you a story of once upon a time in a land quite a ways away, not so very long ago. There were a group of young boys playing on the outskirts of town in a rather dilapidated industrial part of a small rustic industrial town. And a bunch of the boys were picking up rocks and they were throwing them through windows of an abandoned building, just listening for that ecstatic shatter of glass caroming down onto the ground below, inside and outside of these buildings. And these boys were having a wonderful, great, fun time, and they kept doing it, kept, you know, heaving rocks as much as they could to see if they could get the glass to break. And after a while, they noticed that there was one kid, one, there's always one kid, right? There's one kid who wasn't throwing any rocks. And it became apparently, like, obvious that he was not participating. And so one particularly thuggish bully of an unwise, foolish character, let's just call him Eric, started to call this other kid all sorts of horrible, horrible names, like chicken. I mean, it was a harder, crueler time back then. We would never stoop to such verbiage today. Said, oh, I get it. Are you not gonna you're not gonna throw rocks? What are you afraid? What are you what are you scared? What are you chicken? Oh, I know what this is about, said the bully kid or the unwise fool. I get it. You don't want to do this because you're afraid. You're afraid of your dad. You're afraid of what he'll do to you if he finds out. And the kid who was not participating, shockingly, stunningly said, no. I'm afraid of what I would do to him if he found out. Now that is all the difference in the world. The kid did not want to devastate or harm in any way his father. The, the relationship that he had with his dad, he didn't want to in any way impugn or injure whatsoever. Now, as it turns out, that very sentiment is a master biblical theme, and it actually spans both testaments of our Bible. We tend to think of spirituality or Christianity as all of these things that we're not supposed to do, or perhaps an equally long list of things that we're supposed to do. It's all of these do's and don'ts, and it all begins to seem and sound very religious, and it's off-putting and it's unpalatable to a great many people in the 21st century. But as we say very often around here, quoting Dr. David Dart from Tennessee, religion is simply one's organizing narrative. How is it that your life actually organizes? What are the causes and effects that you assume and believe and operate on? That's your religion. And so everybody is religious. You do not know a completely irreligious person. Everybody has some sort of organizing narrative. Now, with all that as a backdrop, it's helpful for us to understand when we say downtown all the time, as often as we can, the centrality and the importance of the gospel. The gospel is the good news about what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. And that is our organizing narrative. 
God's done a thing mercifully, graciously, unmeritedly, and so we make it our desire to please him. We got something glorious and grand and everlasting and eternal, not because we're shrewd or smart or clever or particularly cute, simply rooted in who and how and what God is and what he is like. And so we want to draw near to the lawgiver so much so that manifesting, expressing his law of righteousness, goodness, virtue, holiness, and purity is not just what we ought to do, but ever increasingly we become those kinds of people where it becomes what we want to do. And that might seem outlandish and impossible or even implausible for many of us, particularly if you've ever had children. (laughs) I get it. Where the thing that they ought to do becomes what they want to do. But that is the pursuit of holiness. We make it our aim, Paul will say, to please God. In Ephesians, Paul will say, find out what pleases God and do that. Well, I want to jump to the punchline and give us our big idea this morning. And it goes very simply like this. Holiness pleases God. It's what he loves. It's what he is. It's what he's like. It's what he does. It's holiness. God is holy, holy, holy. The only time an adjective is used of God in triplicate. He is holy, holy, holy. That is his righteousness, his godness rolling forward, setting the world to its initial intended created order. That is what God is. That's what he's like. And so he loves it when he sees that in us. Holiness pleases God. Which brings us now to 1 Thessalonians, and we're in chapter 4. And we've been in 1 Thessalonians for a few weeks now. We've been here for three weeks. This is our fourth week. We started way back in chapter 1, and then chapter 2, and then chapter 3. It's weird. We keep doing it sequentially like that. It's just kind of what we do here, left to right. We have found ourselves on Paul's second missionary journey. He has been in what is today Turkey. He wanted to go to Ephesus. The Spirit of God said no. He said, fine, I'll go north. I'll go to Bithynia. The Spirit of Jesus said no. Paul goes to bed. He has a vision. Somebody from Macedonia that's in Europe says, please come over here and help us. And so Paul and his companions, Timothy and Silas, they go to the coast. They pick up Dr. Luke and they sail across. They go to Philippi. They plant the first church in Western civilization in Philippi, in Europe, in Macedonia. They get beaten up in Philippi. They have to leave. They go through Apollonia and Amphipolis, and they go to a place called Thessalonica where there's a synagogue. At least 10 Jewish households that agree with one another. Paul begins to reason over at least three Sabbaths. Finally, they start a riot because he says that Messiah has come and he is available to the Gentiles. And so Paul and his companions have to leave. Paul goes down to Athens. He leaves his companion Uh, Silas in Berea, he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica because he is so bereaved at how he was torn away from them. Finally, Paul makes his way down to Corinth where he's beaten up. He's in a depression. He's absolutely at his lowest, but at least he meets Priscilla and Aquila and they begin to make tents together and encourage one another. Timothy finally comes back from Thessalonica and he brings a report. Paul, here's how they're doing. They're actually doing great. They love you. They miss you. They miss us. They can't wait to see us again. But they have some questions. So the first three chapters of Thessalonians, 
are all about doctrine, all about Paul explaining sort of the theological underpinnings of what it means to be in Christ. And as is his typical fashion, he'll then pivot and begin to get into some of the very, very practical matters. So chapter 4, chapter 5 are very practical. You might think of it like the book of Romans, 11 chapters of doctrine, chapter 12, therefore, in view of God's mercy. Or the book of Ephesians, three chapters of doctrine and then three chapters of doing. Very similarly, which is why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul begins with this word. Finally then, <laughs> he's a preacher because he's far from done. We got two more whole chapters and he says finally. Well, he's not actually about to wrap it up. He's just saying, let me pivot, let me turn the corner, and now get into some very practical matters. We've talked about all the doctrines. We've reminded you of the things that we taught while we were there. Let me get very specific. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4 is a very familiar passage to many people. The first half of the chapter deals with life. The second half of the chapter deals with death. And depending on who you are and your experience and your time or perhaps your denominational trajectory or your theological heritage, you're probably very familiar with the first half of 1 Thessalonians 4 or you're very familiar with the second half of 1 Thessalonians 4. But they actually go together. Let me put it as plainly as I can. It's always fun for a preacher to get to talk about this. 1 Thessalonians 4 deals with sex, work, and death. All right! You just never go to seminary thinking you're going to get to the stand and go, let's talk about sex and then work and then death and how those things all interplay. Yeah, that's so weird. I know, buckle up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to start pretty clearly here. Finally, then brothers, we ask and urge. Oh, please, I come alongside and exhort. Parakaleo, it's what we call the, the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside and exhorts and urges. Finally, then, brothers, this Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, tutored under Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi in Israel's history, calls these Greek Gentile Christians siblings. It's an amazing title of grace. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. We taught you in the Lord Jesus... We taught you how to walk. And that word for Paul walk is always about your philosophy, your aesthetic of life, your ethic of life, your religion, you might say, your organizing narrative. How do you think life actually clicks? How do you think life actually works? We urge you and we ask you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Paul says, I don't have a fresh new word. It, we're not going to varsity. We're not going to the graduate level course here. What I taught you when I was with you for about three and a half, maybe four weeks, do that more and more and more and more. Wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. Yeah, but I want a new way of shampooing my hair. No, wash and rinse and repeat. That's what you do. Do it more and do it more. And as you do that, as you practice persistently his presence, you will grow in holiness. And did you see what it says here? End of verse 1, that you ought to walk and to please God. What pleases God? Holiness pleases God. Just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You're going to hear that theme again. Do it again and again. For, verse 2, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. We taught you in the Lord Jesus then as though 
the Lord Jesus himself were teaching you? Because in a sense he was by his spirit, through his word, among his people. We taught you and we urge you to continue. This is the word of God is what Paul is saying. Now, verses 3 through 8 get very particular. They get very, very precise. It has to do with sexual purity and sexual morality. Oftentimes, when you read through Paul, it's helpful to understand that when Paul writes this, he's sort of having a bit of a dialogue. He's sort of having half of a conversation. It's sort of like when you hear somebody, and they're on the phone, you can hear what they're saying, and by inference then, you can sort of understand what the other person is probably saying on the phone. Sometimes Paul will write in a way, and you just go, gosh, that's really strange. It's sort of this rapid-fire, quick-burst, staccato messaging from Paul, what's really going on? Well, he's having a dialogue. This is the way Paul thinks. This is the way Paul often will write. And so he will say, beginning in verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. The Greek term is hagiasmos, that you be holified, that you be sanctified. Now, that's one of those churchy words, but it's really, really an important word. It matters. Sanctification is a part of our salvation, but it is different than our justification. There are whole sects and denominations that will try to equate sanctification and justification, that you have to go through a process in order to get saved. We would reject that. We would reject that forcefully. Justification happens at a moment in an instant in the past. You were found guilty by God, but he declares you righteous. Functionally, nothing actually changes about you, but God changes his mind about you, and so forensically, legally, you are righteous. Even though, have you taken inventory of your day? That's justification. You were found guilty, but God in his grace and in his mercy declares you righteous, and that's really good news. We call that the gospel. Those who are enemies of God have been brought near, and so Romans 5 says we have peace with the sovereign God of the cosmos. That's justification. But then sanctification is a little bit different. Sanctification is a lot broader. It's a lot more, um, well, it covers all three areas of time. Sanctification, in one sense, happens in the past. we, we, We call this, when you are a believer, when you are converted, you experience what's called positional sanctification. That places you in the mind of God in Christ. In Christ is your position for now and for always and to all eternity. And that position never, ever, 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 ever changes. Ever. It cannot improve. It cannot diminish. Your position as holy, holy, holy in the mind of God is in Christ now and forever. And that's very good news. We forget that. We sometimes forget that we are in Christ positionally and We have access in that proximity into that presence and that relationship. That is a part of our sanctification. It happened at conversion. We are positionally in Christ. And then there is the present or the progressive sanctification where God leads us through series of seasons into and through relationships that refine us, that hone us, that sand us, that spark us, and sometimes just tick us off. We're being refined, we're being fashioned, ever increasingly transformed into his image. That is the present stage of our lives. That is called progressive sanctification. 
so that we ever increasingly become like him. And then there's the future aspect of our sanctification when we are removed permanently, permanently from the presence of sin and from all of the issues that come from that. So there is the past, that's our position, the present, that is our progressive sanctification. In the future, that is our permanent sanctification. Sometimes we'll call that glorification. No more change, no more transformation. We're finally like him. And so sanctification involves wonderfully, marvelously, and beautifully. We are sanctified. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. All of the things that are held against us were held on Jesus. We are saved. We are in the present being saved from the power of sin. It no longer has sway on us. When we sin, <laughs> it's because we want to, not because we have to. We have been saved from the penalty. We are being saved from the power. One day, we will be saved from the presence of sin, and we will be holy. And all along the process, God is not in a hurry. Holiness pleases God, and as we pursue that, God gets the glory. Not us. God gets the glory. All right, so here's the deal. I want to be a little bit brief as we charge into this chapter. A number of years ago, there was a, a lady named Stephanie Mazingo. Some of you know and love and remember Stephanie. That's right. That's a woo for Stephanie. Stephanie led our children's ministry, and about every other Sunday, she would come up and she'd say, okay, huh, you used four yellow words and two orange words and almost one red word. I'm gonna, it's because she was defending our children. I'm going to try super hard not to use any red words for sure. No orange words and almost no yellow words. I'm going to try. But this is really difficult. Increasingly, we have been bombarded in our culture by messaging that erodes and degrades our understanding of sexual purity. And it is a massive, massive deal. What Paul teaches consistently in his epistles, is rooted in who God is and what he wants for people that are identified in his son, Jesus Christ. It is not, as some have claimed, well, that's just some cultural uniqueness that was happening in ancient Greece 2,000 years ago. No, it is rooted in the person and the character and the essence of God. So again, let's start chapter 4. Starting in verse 3, I want you to hear this sort of like it's a dialogue. You can start reading along, beginning in verse 3. I want you to hear this as a dialogue. Paul's going to say in verse 3, For this is the will of God, that you be sanctified. And they would have said, well, sanctified, what exactly do you mean, Paul, very clearly? Avoid sexual immorality. Okay, that was clearer. <laughs> we want you to be sanctified. This is God's will. Well, I know what you're thinking. Well, when I hear God's will, most of us think... God's will for my life. I, I want him to tell me where to live, what job to take, uh, who I should marry, all these kinds of things. Now, God's got bigger plans. He's actually interested in our eternality and our everlastingness, not necessarily these short-sighted issues. And so Paul says, this is God's will for your life, Thessalonians, or Thessalonians, and by extension, 2,000 years later, us. This is God's will, that you be holy. That you be holy. Leviticus, it's very ancient stuff. Be holy just as I am holy. It's not advice, it's a command. And that's very good news. So he says, this is God's will for your life, that you be sanctified. And they say, well, what exactly do you mean? He says, avoid sexual immorality. And they say, <laughs> how exactly am I supposed to do that? In case you haven't noticed, Paul, we live in Thessalonica. Now, that probably doesn't mean a bunch to you and to me. But in Thessalonica, they were world famous for worshiping the Kabiri. We're not going to get into this a whole lot, but the Kabiri were uh, 
let's just say they were temple priestesses who were exceedingly friendly, all right? And the Thessalonican men, well, that's how they sort of tried to ensure their business successes and their agricultural produce, was by worshiping with the Kabiri. And so Paul says, yeah, no, that's over. That's not who we are. That's not conduct becoming a child of the king. God's will is that you be holy, that you be sanctified. How do we do that exactly? Avoid sexual immorality. Well, how am I supposed to do that? Paul says, learn to control your own body. <laughs> and they go, wait, what? No one's ever done that before. Now, maybe your Bibles, we've got a lot of different translations in here. I'm trying to avoid yellow words, certainly trying to avoid orange words, will not say any red words, but some of your translations will talk about control your own body, your own vessel. Some of your translations might even say your wife. Eh, that's not probably what's going on there. It's a bit of a euphemism about your body and specifically the parts that get you in trouble. Okay, we're just going to move on from there. Learn how to control these things, Paul says, and they're going... No one's ever told us this before. It was completely culturally appropriate to just do whatever you wanted. Can you imagine the culture that celebrated if it feels good, do it? Just imagine. <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, 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 uh. So here's the dialogue, all right? Paul says, God's will is that you be sanctified. Well, what does that mean? Avoid sexual immorality. They say, how are we supposed to do that? Paul says, learn to control your own body, that, that physical aspect of your being. They say, oh, okay, so it's sort of just a personal, private matter then. Paul says, no, no, no. Make sure that you don't wrong another brother or sister. Now, can I just tell you very directly and somewhat transparently and yet also cautiously, I spend a lot of time in counseling contexts pastorally, and if I've heard it once, I've heard it a hundred times. Digital involvement with sexual immorality, I mean online pornography, is widely assumed to be a victimless crime. I assure you, it is not. When they ask, oh, so this is just a personal, private matter, Paul says, no. Anytime you engage in sexual immorality, and yes, the word there is porneia, where we get our word for pornography, it always has victims. It always causes problems. It always causes harm. I promise you, whoever is engaged in that industry has somebody in this world that loves them that is grieved to death over what that individual or individuals are participating in. Particularly if it has to be in the arena of extramarital affairs and adultery, then there is the harming of another brother in Christ, someone you will never not know for all eternity, or a sister in Christ, someone you will never not know for all eternity. It's not a personal, private matter. You are an ambassador of the kingdom. That is conduct, unbecoming an agent, an emissary of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And besides, if all we ever think about is not doing the wrong thing or doing just the right thing, we're missing the point entirely. There's no power there. It is about holiness, which pleases God, and we love him. Now, our enemy tries to convince us and remind us that we don't and that we shouldn't, and then there's no point to it, but we love him. We make it our aim to please him, Paul says. And so they ask the question, so this is a personal, private matter? No, make sure that you don't wrong another brother or a sister. Well, they say, isn't God loving and forgiving? He won't really mind if I mess up, will he? Paul says, listen, the Lord takes this kind of sin seriously. There are consequences. Hold up, they say. Tell me again, but be simpler and slower. Paul says, fine. God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. 
And they say, whoa, Paul, I think this may be a bit restrictive and excessive. I think you've gone a little bit too far. Paul says, he who rejects this instruction isn't rejecting man, he's rejecting God. And before they can respond, Paul says, he nips it in the bud and he reminds them that God has given his Holy Spirit to them to permanently indwell them. And he sums it up, holiness pleases God. This issue of sexual immorality matters massively. It is that word porneia. It has the idea of treating another human being created in the image of God as an object. You've heard it called objectification. Using somebody else as though they are treasure for my pleasure. And that is a sovereign reach for sovereignty. And so let me put it very plainly, if I may. The sin of lust and sexual immorality is, in fact, in its broadest sense, the sin of unbelief. I don't really believe God is who he says he is. I don't really believe that God is like he says he is. I don't really believe that he says about my brother or my sister who God says they are. And so I decide to put that on pause. I hold off. Or like Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, when we sin, it's not so much that we hate God, it's that we choose to forget him, which is an active form of disbelief, and there are consequences for that. Remember, when Paul is sitting, writing this letter to the Thessalonians, remember where he is. He is sitting in Corinth, where he's probably in the shadow of the temple of Aphrodite, which was one of the most lewd and debauched and depraved places in all the Western world, writing to some people in Thessalonica who were engaged in the worship of the Kabiri. And so what he's writing is very serious. Later, he'll write a letter to the Corinthians as well. And this is what he says more precisely and more on point. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20, flee from sexual immorality. It's the only type of sin where Paul says, don't stand and fight it. Run, turn tail, little fella. Hook them, get gone. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexual and moral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the way Paul says, this is the way the, the people who are the Gentiles, what they do. He doesn't just mean non-Jews. The, the word there is ethnos. It's, it's the nations who are not Israel, the nations who do not know God. And that's the point. There is a universe of difference between people who know a lot about God and those who know God. And I will tell you, in my experience, dealing with principally men, but increasingly women who are engaged in fantasy and image manipulation, knowing a lot about God is utterly powerless in the moment of temptation. Knowing God even a little Knowing him, what he's like, how much he likes you, how much he loves you, his character, what he's crazy about, that is the power in the moment. And you always decide in advance. Now, it's not always easy, of course, but knowing God is absolutely the point. Knowing God personally is that which delivers us from the power of sin. It's like we started off with that story of that little boy. If we really knew the Father and loved him, we would not want to do this thing to him. Holiness pleases God. Well, let me move on and pivot because we've talked about sex. Now we get to talk very briefly about work. In verse 9, 
He says, now considering brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That's interesting. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. In other words, your reputation has exceeded Thessalonica. It's gone to all the province of Macedonia in the north, and it's even made it down into the south where Achaia is, where Corinth and Athens are located. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. No fresh word, no new information, no new revelation. Just keep doing what you have been doing, but do it more and more. Holiness pleases God, he explains. And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul says, get to work. And they're going, wait, you want us to what now? Now, we might hear that and go, well, well, duh. Paul says, no, let me explain. A life of productivity is integrity. It is dignity. It is nobility. Be at work. Be productive. We say this all the time. What is the act of gardening? It is taking the resources that God has given and rearranging them to bless the community. That's gardening. That was Adam's first job. To take the resources that were available in some sort of chaotic form and to apply cosmos, not chaos, cosmos, to reorder and to add function and life to them. Get to work. Why is he saying that? Because we're talking about Greece 2,000 years ago. Manual labor was reviled by the Greeks. They thought it was beneath them. They relegated all physical labor to their slaves. They would not do any work themselves. In fact, Greek men would all grow out their pinky fingernails super long. Weird. But they would grow out their pinky nails really long to demonstrate that they were incapable of doing any labor whatsoever. So, fathers, if your son starts to do that, <laughs> clip, clip. <laughs> you deal with that problem right away. The Jewish culture, however, highly valued and prized manual labor and productivity. Every Jewish boy, regardless of wealth or affluence, was taught a trade. This is why the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was a tent maker. His family was very, very affluent. They could afford to send him to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel. But Paul was trained by his father and his father's household how to make tents. And so Paul says, I don't want the Christian community to ever be viewed as consumers of the community. I want them to be viewed as contributors to the community to act in holiness as though you actually represent the coming king because you do. You are from the future. And until he returns, I want you to be about gardening. I want you to take the resources that God has given you and I want you to rearrange them in such a way, and it will be hard, that it blesses the community around you. You need to get to work. Nothing new. Just keep what you're doing and do it more and more and more. So we've talked about life, that including sex and work, now we need to pivot and go to chapter 4, verse 13. This is why this chapter is very familiar to a great many of the rest of you. This is what will probably be read at your graveside or mine, or we can do it together if you like, whichever. This is a very familiar passage. And yes, it's the central passage in our Bible about the rapture, or what we used to call in the 80s the denomination splitter. <laughs> it doesn't need to be. We don't need to argue about this stuff. This is not the time where I get to go, okay, I got 19 charts. You're going to put them all up on screen. You're going to see a dragon and some chick with a golden goblet riding in a minivan. No, no, we're not going to do any of that stuff. We're not going to talk about that. We want to talk about this in context. 
Because Paul's talking about how to live real life in a real world. This is a letter from a person to some people at a place, at a period, for a purpose. And they're struggling. How do we do this Christian thing? Paul says, oh, it's holiness that pleases God. You, you want to please God, don't you? Oh, well, let me, let, me, let me exhort you, encourage and urge you and ask you to please God. You do that through holiness. And they said, but what about people who have died? We've got apparently some believers here, Paul, that have already died. We don't know if that's because of persecution. We don't know because of natural causes or death. We don't know. It, it would seem to be pretty premature if they're already being persecuted unto death, but it's possible. But they're beginning to wonder, hey, what am, what, you, you told us the gospel and it's good news, but, but my wife has passed or my, my son fell ill and he's, and he's dead. Where, where is the hope? Paul, and so Paul begins, chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed. The word there is ignorant. Why would he say that? Well, because they were. They, they didn't know. They didn't understand, and they were beginning to waver and to flag and to have a bit of a panic. They weren't really clear. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And he uses the same euphemism that Jesus uses. They're not just sleepy. They're not in a medical-induced coma. They're dead. Not mostly dead all day. They are dead dead. Death in your Bible always means separation. You are a complete person. You are 100% physical and material. You are also 100% spiritual and immaterial. You are both wonderfully, fearfully made. You are a spiritual being, you are a physical being. You are both, 100% of each, and the math doesn't work, and God does not care. At death, what occurs is this horrible, unnatural, breaking the heart of God, rending asunder of a person who is spiritual and physical, and they are separated from one another. Death is horrible. That's how big a deal sin is. Sin did that. God didn't do that. Sin does that. It separates. So I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep, who have been separate. You aren't a physical being zipped into a meat suit. You aren't a physical person that happens to have a little soul injected in by God's cosmic turkey baster. You are a spiritual and physical person. You are wonderfully, fearfully made. Don't you know whose you are and whose image you bear? And therefore, don't you know the people that you encounter that you view as mere objects of your pleasure? They are eternal beings. They will never, ever, ever not exist in some capacity or another. Sexual morality, it matters massively. And so there's this issue of death. Well, what do we do? Paul answers them. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. Oh, no, I want you to grieve. I want you to grieve as those who have hope. Paul never says, now you stop that right now. Be tough. Be German. He doesn't say that. <laughs> no, no. I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe. Now, see, this, is, this passage, yes, it's the central text on the rapture and the doctrine of the rapture. But Paul's rooting this in a historical event. 
Remember, the Jews found it offensive that someone would claim that God became a human and that that human was the creator of the cosmos. That was deeply offensive to them. The Greeks thought it was asinine that you were supposed to believe in the occurrence of an actual historical event. They preferred an aesthetic or an ethic or a code of conduct. Paul says, no. Our confession is that God lived in the form of Jesus, a human, and he lived a perfect life in thought, word, and deed, and he died. And he atoned for our sin, and he was buried because he was dead, dead. And he rose again on the third day, and he was seen by hundreds, and he ascended, and he's coming back. That is the content of our confession. For since, he says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Oh, grieve, but may it be temporary. Because those who have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ, you will see again, just as certainly, just as certainly as Jesus is alive. Now, if you don't believe that, then you don't have to worry about believing this. And so you then have no hope. And your life can be a dumpster fire on a train wreck, on a boating accident, all you like. But since we believe that Jesus is alive, this is what we also believe. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Now, it's a strange little expression. What Paul's saying here is, this I'm telling you, this is not my idea. This is information and revelation that he got directly from the risen Lord Jesus himself. When? I don't know. Possibly on the road to Damascus? Probably not. Probably while Paul spends not one, not two, but three years in the deserts of Arabia being discipled and trained just like the first 12 disciples had spent three years with Jesus. Paul gets three years in the deserts of Arabia. He tells us about that in Corinthians and in Acts. Or it's perhaps when Paul on his first missionary journey is in Galatia and Lystra and Iconium and Derby, and they stone him almost to death or perhaps really to death. We don't really know. And Paul says, I don't know what really happened. It's kind of a crazy deal. There I was in the third heaven. Yeah, I can't talk about it. It was pretty awesome, though, but I can't talk about it. Third heaven, seminary, graduating class, one. Paul. And I can't tell you what happened. So maybe he got, I don't know, but somewhere the Lord Jesus himself told Paul, this is how it will go down. Now, that matters. It's not Paul just trying to figure this out speculatively. It was clear enough that Jesus told him this is how it goes. We declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, nice, Paul, you're thinking you're going to be around for it. Yeah, I'd like that too, but... Yeah, maybe not. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Can I just tell you something? It'll be loud. <laughs> you, got, you got threefold, very loud noises there. What's it going to sound like exactly? I don't know, but I've heard... A lot of talk in recent years about the secret rapture. It's going to be a complete mystery. And all of a sudden, everyone's going to look around. Whoa, there's a pair of pants and no one's in them. That's weird. No, no, and no. A threefold global audible calamity. All right? I don't know what the voice of the archangel sounds like, but it's, uh, it's, not, a, it's, it's, it's not a secret. All right? And with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Lutherans, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, that is a technical term that Paul always uses. The dead, that means those who have died, in Christ. That is very specifically for those who have come to faith in the church age who are viewed by God the Father as in Christ and who are indwelled eternally by the Holy Spirit. That is not an Old Testament saint. Never is an Old Testament saint indwelled by the Spirit of God. Perhaps 
temporarily the Spirit would come upon an Old Testament saint, but only New Testament Christians are viewed as in Christ. Super significant, technical detail. Paul will make a whole book called Romans about being in Christ. And we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them. There it is, the word caught up. The term rapture is not in your Bible. That's a Latin term. The word here caught up is harpazo in Greek. It was translated in the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation, as rapturo. That's where we get the word for rapture. But here it is. They will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. Those who have passed away, who are believers, will be raised first. They will join those who are coming. And then we will be reunited with them in the sky, reunited, and it feels so good, reunited, and I knew it would. They should write a song about that. For those of you who are of a certain age, you know. And so we will always be with the Lord, always. And that's the hope. And that's why we want to please him. Do you see? Because we will always be with him. Do you see what pleases him? Holiness. Holiness pleases God. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's not just supposed to be this nerdy thing where engineering types sit around with cigarettes and charts and go, well, the raptor's clearly going to be. That's not what this is about. Paul says, I want you to be encouraged and encourage one another with this stuff. Because it's all theoretical until it comes into practice. When you lose someone or you get that phone call yourself, we will always be with the Lord. So encourage one another. Be reminded, oh, yes, this is hard, but he's coming, and we're going to be with him forever and ever. This momentary struggle is but a twinkle in the sky. So what do we take away from this? Holiness pleases God. Three super quick implications from these three different chunks of text in 1 Thessalonians 4. Number one goes like this. Knowing God is the pathway to purity. This is our paragraph on sex from chapter 4. Knowing God is the pathway to purity. I think it's interesting, in recent years, the term piety has taken on a kind of a dour or a sour or a negative connotation. It implies someone who is just sort of like, ugh, unpleasant to be around and having to follow a bunch of rules joylessly so that they can be seen as obedient. But that's not piety, actually. It's more like pride. True piety is simply holiness practiced because of love for the Holy One. That's piety. To simply try harder, to be better at not doing bad things or trying good things is a recipe for almost instantaneous failure. We're going to have a show of hands. Where we're, no, I'm kidding. We're not going to do it. We know this. Simply trying harder in your own power never, never, never works. Elizabeth Elliot famously wrote that most people fail in sexual purity because they can't envision maintaining that purity for an entire lifetime. Her answer was always the same. You don't have to do it for a lifetime. Jesus already did that, she said. All you and I have to do is look at him for the next 60 seconds and then keep doing that and then keep doing that. More and more is what the Apostle Paul said. Being able to joyfully delay gratification is one of the marks of spiritual maturity. And again, it might seem like a victimless crime, but it is simply not. Guilt is good, and that comes from the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but shame is devastating. And our enemy piles that on so thick that it becomes itself the substance of abuse that we need to thrive. We become addicts of shame. Only recently have we really begun to understand physically what the Bible's been telling us spiritually. 
Sexual immorality literally rewires our physical brains into a system of thinking that it is damaging to us and everyone else around us. It's called neuroplasticity, and our brains literally rewire. One writer put it this way. Our brain neurons wire around whatever makes them fire. Your brain neurons wire around whatever makes them fire. So careful, little eyes, what you see. It's changing your brain. It's warping and damaging and denting your thinker so that you begin to see and encounter other people differently. And I can spot it a mile away. When I see a young man who can't have a conversation with a young woman because of the shame in his soul, he just he can't do it he can't, because his brain's been rewired. But praise God, the brain's also capable of neuroplasticity. God can change it back, and he does. Holiness pleases God. Second point. This might be a little bit weird, but it's so true, and it's so for you. Find what you love and let it bless you. <laughs> so tired of Christians just sort of schlepping through life, getting to the end before they die, hoping to not be dead too quick. Wow, how about that for the worst billboard in all of Christendom? No, find what you love and let it bless you. It's just a quick little four-verse paragraph, verses 9 to 12, but it's packed with practical power. God is the creator, and it means that he took the chaos of the void that existed, and he rearranged it into some function and form that would bless humanity and the world. And we are most like our creator when we peer into the void of some kind of chaos and say, in effect, let there be. When was the last time you let there be with a relationship, with a hobby, in your work, in your marriage, in your parenting? When was the last time you were made in his image to bring about the redemptive recreation that he will bring in fullness at his return? We say this all the time, but I want to say it again. These passages remind us that we are from the future, ambassadors of the coming kingdom, ministering in the present because of what God did in Christ in the past. We are, in effect, gardeners of Eden, gardening in our present age, an expectation of that time when the entire universe will be reordered into a garden-like environment. So find what you love. What are, you, what are your gifts? I, I think sometimes in church we tend to overcook spiritual gifts, and you think, well, to really have a spiritual gift, I need to suddenly be able to speak French, or I have to be able to, like, you know. No! I personally hold to what's called the supernatural natural gift set. You, whoever you are, at your conception, were made in the image of God. And so there are some things that reflect and resemble your creator. And so there are some things that you're good at, you just love. You just have a specific talent or a skill or a joy in doing. Find that and then fan it into flame. And the Spirit of God will take more out of you than you're putting in. That is a supernatural, natural gifting. Find what you love and let it bless you. And I promise you, when you do so because you love the Lord your God, he will use that to bless others. I don't know what it is. Sit down and have coffee with Mike Hall. He'll tell you seven things. You may be a gifted accountant. You may be an incredible teacher or a spectacular counselor. Draw near to your God and, after, and offer that to his service, and he will use it, and you will be blessed, and you will be a blessing. Third point. <laughs> I'll be super quick on this, but let me just say this without getting into anybody's kitchen. The rapture of the church is future history. I can say that dogmatically, not about the timing, not about the sequencing necessarily, but it is future history because Paul says it is. 
just as surely as we know that Jesus was alive, died, rose again, ascended, and is coming back, just as surely as we know that, we know that Christ will rescue the church. That word harpazo is only ever used one other time, and it has to be, and happens to be in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, where the image John sees is of a boy being rescued from a dragon. People thought, well, that little boy's got to be Jesus. Wrong. Sorry, none such luck. Jesus, let me remind you, was never rescued. He is the Son of God. He went through to the cross of his own volition and purpose. No, the rescue or the rapture of the church is future history. We don't have to argue about does it happen before or then or then or then. There's just a series of questions that we can ask. Is the return of Christ literal? I hope you all say yes. Is the return of Christ future? I hope you again say yes. If that's true, those first two, first two questions, then it begs the third question. Is the return of Christ before a millennial reign on earth? The answer has to be yes, because Revelation 19 and 20 say so. If those four questions are all in the affirmative, and they have to be, then the fifth question, is there a rapture, answers itself. There has to be. Simply looking at the text and how Paul roots it. Now, we don't have to get, again, in leg wrestling matches about when exactly. It's not an essential doctrine by any stretch. But Paul says, I want you to encourage one another with these things because grief is going to come. And let me just say, grief is a form of love. We don't grieve forever because we keep and we maintain the big picture. But grief is a form of love for those who have hope. Christ will come for his bride, the church. We're not going to pinpoint the exact timing, but this fits in with so much of the other rest of our Bible, Daniel 9, Matthew 24, 25, Revelation 6 through 18, Revelation 19 and 20, all those kinds of things. Be encouraged. Since it's our future history, we are to encourage one another with these words. Now, we said at the beginning, holiness pleases God, which is why it's really interesting. In the climax of his earthly ministry, in closing, we find Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, he's up on Temple Mount, and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, the authorities, the leaders, the priests, are all coming down on Jesus, and they're ready to kill him. They literally are. In fact, they'll, at the end of the chapter, they'll pick up stones to try to kill him on Temple Mount, which would have been a violation of the law. Because Jesus says, you think you know about pleasing God with all of the things you do, but you don't know my father. Oh, you know your father. He's the devil. <laughs> how to make friends and influence people, Jesus. You know how to please your father. I know how to please my father. In fact, that's all I do. Everything I do and say always brings him honor. Everything I do pleases him. Was he being proudful? No, he was being honest. And don't think that his enemy and our enemy didn't know precisely what Jesus was doing. And he threw every conceivable temptation at the Lord. And he resisted and he rebuffed. Why? Because he was just better than you. No, because he knew God, because he loved God. And he knew that holiness pleased God. And he offers that life in the here and the now to us. And so may we live it in abundance. Holiness pleases God. May we be chips off the old block, we might say. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time together in your word. We thank you for... This text where Paul, an apostle, a pastor, encourages the people of that very real place. And God, we thank you that there will come a time, a time when we will see these people. We will know them.
And so we pray, God, that you would uh, continue to encourage us through this word by the indwelling of your spirit as we gather as your people. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, maybe perhaps even knows a lot about you, but doesn't know you, would you move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a knowledge of your son, Jesus? That they would step out of death into life. And for the rest of us, Father, would you remind us of the criticality of holiness and of the gospel where there is failure. May there there be repentance and a sincere turning and a seeking more and more and more to know you. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.